You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Yes, no groupthink, no platitudes, no shallowness here at the conservative conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz. Your host is back in the house for a new exciting week, and it would be an understatement to call this week exciting. If nothing else, this is going to be one for the records. Um, even before the insanity of what happened the minute the weekend started with all, you know, what breaking loose in the political system on 50 different fronts, just this week alone p- promised to be a seminal week. Um, the convergence of not just the end of the lame duck session, but the end of a two year era culminating with what is likely going to be a massive betrayal. But, you know, President Trump could stand up for us. And, you know, if we actually had a movement backing him, we could finally, for the first time in decades, but really coming at the most important time, have a national dialogue over our sovereignty, especially at a time when, as we mentioned before, there's not a lot of collateral damage, even if you believe a government shutdown causes damage, because 75% of government is already funded for the remainder of the year. So this is just DHS and a few other departments. And DHS is already shut down because these policies put forth by the left, codified by the courts, have already shut down our border patrol, our border agents. Now, a couple things going on here. Right now, I'm beginning to record this show actually Sunday night. So, this is Sunday night, late December 16th, because I want to get a head start on this week. I'm going to, this is the type of week where my voice and my pen, which is my keyboard, is not going to be able to keep up with my brain. Just the policies, the details I need to uh, monitor and give over to you guys, and, you know, the, notion that maybe I can make a difference, maybe we can make a difference, always keeps me on the edge. I never want to leave anything on the table. Budget, borders, the drug crisis, jailbreak, coming to a four-year culmination, doesn't look good, but we're going to make our closing arguments. And then all the new stuff that broke over the weekend tying into healthcare. Now, so anyway, that's just why I want to get a head start because I'm going to have to monitor stuff. I'm going to have to write stuff. I'm going to have to talk to people. So, you know, while things are still quiet over the weekend, I wanted to start recording this um, to give you perspective on the things that I feel we could already talk about. The border budget fight, still very fluid. Jailbreak fight, still very fluid. I want to mainly discuss Obamacare, the courts, and the intersection. Of the two, judicial supremacism, healthcare, Obamacare, all, I mean, it's funny, we didn't even think we'd have these issues to deal with this week, and Murphy's Law, you know, works in such a way that 
When it rains, it pours. So this is going to be one of the most critical weeks we've had in a long time. As you know, um, well, maybe not all of you know, but some of you know, every weekend, I completely unplug as God rested on the seventh day. I rest on the seventh day with my family. I don't work. Um, and I shut out the world. Otherwise, I would just go insane. So, you know, after the workday on Friday, I am done, completely done until, um, until the next day. So, you know, typically when I get back online, you know, it's, it's a Saturday, it's a weekday. What, ha- what already happened? What did you miss? Well, it turned out, you know, late Friday evening, all hell broke loose on a bunch of bunch of fronts. Real quickly, let's just give the top lines, and then we're going to mainly spend our time again on the Obamacare ruling. So number one, um, Trump announces that Mick Mulvaney, the current OMB director, is going to be, at least for the time being, the acting chief of staff to replace General John Kelly. Number two, a CBO score comes out showing that the jailbreak bill indeed is jailbreak and will result in the equivalent of 53,000 federal prisoners being released early in a matter of a year. And, and the bill will increase the deficit by $352 million. So you get the jailbreak, which officially the whole, you know, you, you destroy the country with violent criminals, but we're told at least the ancillary benefit is you save money. Uh, actually not. If we have time, we'll talk about that. And then the Obamacare ruling, um, Judge Reed O'Connor, a conservative judge, George W. Bush appointee from the Northern District of Texas, gave summary judgment in favor of the plaintiffs, the state of Texas, as well as the 19 other states that joined with them to rule that the individual mandate, as it is currently construed after the tax law, is unconstitutional, and therefore the entirety of the rest of the law, which is inextricably uh, related, interdependent on that provision, therefore that also falls away, and all of Obamacare is unconstitutional. So where do we begin? Where do we begin? First, I just want to dispense with one thing really quickly. So about that Mick Mulvaney appointment, um, I'm probably a little bit more down on Mick than some of my colleagues are. A lot of people feel this is a big victory for conservatives. Look, Mick is a big libertarian. Um, he's terrible on jailbreak. He's really terrible on immigration. Now, you might say he's good on fiscal issues and dollars and cents, like a libertarian, but, you know, history has shown with him that as OMB director, he was all talk and no, you know, no bite, all hat and no cattle. He always said, oh, we're going to fight on the next budget, the next budget, and he put out a budget and then didn't stand behind it. So I'm not very impressed for, from what I see. Um And in fact, I think his relationships with some conservatives in Congress actually hurts us because he's going to use it just to browbeat them into submission where some of the conservatives often need to stand up to the administration. 
So that's with that. I'm not that happy with it. But, you know, again, it could have been worse. But the good news about that is a dear, dear friend of mine, Russ Vogt, who is currently deputy OMB director, will now be the acting OMB director. And the good news is that because it's just it's it's an all but name only, but Mick is going to officially still be legally the OMB director while he's chief of staff because chief of staff is not a, um, you know, it's not a cabinet. I mean, it's cabinet level certainly, but it doesn't require uh, confirmation from the Senate because it's it's the president's own, um, you know, personal advisor. He's allowed to have advisors. It's not an official, you know, executive position. So. Russ doesn't have to go through the gauntlet of Senate confirmation, which would be very hard because Russ is a true conservative. Russ, in case you don't know, Russ and Mary, his wife, are are very close friends of mine for a number of years. Um, I worked for Russ a little bit. Mary worked for me um, and with me. We're colleagues. And I've learned a lot from Russ. I've spoken to him recently. He's one of the people I consider a mentor, someone I could speak to just with a great degree of specificity on policy issues or just philosophically deep thinker, um, just stand up human being. Uh, they don't, they don't get any better in the Trump administration. He is the best. And now he will basically be running OMB. So, you know, look, he can still be overruled. You still got Jared. You still, still got all the problems, but it's one, you know, good guy in a very top cabinet level position. I mean, in many ways, OMB controls everything else. So that is really good downstream news. Okay, before we get too off into the rabbit holes, main course of the day, we had the smorgasbord here. Time for the main course. I know you've all been waiting to hear this. So I've written a book. I've written hundreds of columns. I've spoken for hours upon hours about judicial supremacy and what I believe the role of the judiciary is, what it isn't, and you know, how the left is using the judiciary to basically determine the outcome of of every cultural and political issue, um, bastardize the Constitution, and this notion that any judge is the end all. Seemingly, there would be a very big conflict of interest for conservatives based on what happened late Friday. Judge Reed O'Connor, Bush appointee for the Northern District of Texas, he granted summary judgment to the plaintiffs ruling that Obamacare in its entirety is unconstitutional. Well, Daniel, there's no greater political issue of our time than Obamacare. And here you have, you know, out of nowhere, any random district judge could just tell you it's unconstitutional. So, this is going to take a while to explain, and I hope I could find some capacity to articulate this in an article as well without it being like 4,000 words. But there's a lot of multiple things that are true at the same time, and we're going to take an intellectually honest approach here. There's aspects I disagree with Reed O'Connor on. There's aspects that I think he is right under the current rules of, of standing and severability in the judiciary, in the Fifth Circuit, which he's governed by, and the Supreme Court overall. And then there's aspects I disagree, that, that I agree that he was following those precedents, but I think the entire precedent of 
the way the judiciary works on these issues is wrong and violates Article 3 standing of cases and controversies and determining what the role of the judiciary is is distinct from the other branches of government. I, I don't intend to rehash everything we've ever said on this issue, you know, because that would take hours upon hours. But obviously, you know, in terms of ultimately the role of the judiciary, what the difference between judicial review is, which if understood properly, I agree with, and judicial supremacy slash exclusivity, which I don't agree with, I would refer you, refer you to episodes 249 and 250 of our podcast that I think uh, definitely go through <clears throat> a lot of this stuff. There's also a number of other ones, and hopefully I'm going to find it um, before we... Uh, uh, be, be, before be, you know, before you either wind, wind up publishing uh, this, because I'm I'm forgetting there was one other show, and some of you guys that are just really good fans here are 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 definitely going to know where the show was or remember, um, you know, when I did it. But it, it might have been sometime in September, and I just can't remember. But um. Let's see where this is. I'm just doing a quick look here. So it's 249, 250. Okay, here, here we go. 274 and 275. If you listen to those four hours worth of shows, four and a half hours probably, if you put them all together, those four shows, 249, 250, 274, 275, you'll understand where I'm coming from. But we're going to rehash it today. So let's, let's first off explain what Reed O'Connor did um, what the plaintiffs were asking for before we have our analysis. So basically, if you remember, an NFI visa bilious, the main Obamacare case from years ago, from you know the first case, basically what happened there was, um, l- l- let me just start off by saying, Obamacare is unconstitutional. It's not just bad healthcare policy, creates a monopoly, destroys R&D, destroys private practice, you know, makes insurance insolvent, creates endless dependency um, and price inflation. Obamacare is unconstitutional. Okay, so I, I firmly believe it's not just, oh, you know, I agree because a judge said it. And you're going to see there's certain footwork I don't like with what he did, which which goes along with the judicial supremacy. But as in terms of how he arrived to that conclusion, but make no mistake. I believe Obamacare is unconstitutional. All of it is unconstitutional. So the individual mandate for sure is unconstitutional because, you know, when you force someone to purchase a private product, put another way, you are regulating an inactivity or coercing an individual to engage in commerce. There's no way anyone right, left or in between could ever say that that is in bounds within the enumerated powers of Congress. Because if that would be within the enumerated powers, then there's literally, quite literally, absolutely nothing they cannot do. If they could regulate an inactivity, there's nothing they cannot force you to do. Okay? So, um, so, so that's, that's, that's number one. And the rest of it, guaranteed issue community rating the insurance regulations. You're, you're telling an insurance company that you're telling, I cannot start a business and provide insurance. You are basically outlawing insurance. You're saying you cannot have, that's what insurance is. You're saying, you know, it's a risk adjustment. It's underwriting. You're saying 
for healthcare, unlike other spheres of things, because I want a virtue signal over sickness and health and wellness, I'm going to force you to have a prepaid just coverage. But that's not insurance. The, they don't have that, that. That's not an enumerated power either, meaning it's not just that they can't regulate inactivity. They can't regulate all activity except what's enumerated. And frankly, the Medicaid and the subsidies, you're taking from other people that they have to pay $2,500 premiums in order to um, redistribute to other people. That is unconstitutional. Not because a judge says so. As we said, judges do not have the final and exclusive say over the Constitution. They rule on individual case or controversies, but if they want to use that case to create some sort of binding precedent on everyone, other branches have the right to push back. But we have the right to say the judge is right, too. We have the right to say the judge is wrong. But, you know, as a society, we should. The right answer is it's unconstitutional. Now, the problem with the latter half of the argument, the non-individual mandate portions of Obamacare, is that if you're going to say that, the truth be told, then 90% of what the federal government does is unconstitutional. Because all a lot of what they do is redistributing wealth, creating regulations outside of their enumerated powers. They don't have the right to get involved in education, in, in um, agriculture, in healthcare. That is left up to the states. I firmly believe that. I believe all of it's unconstitutional. I have no problem saying that. Social Security is unconstitutional because it, it would have needed another, just like the income tax needed a, an amendment, right? needed the 16th Amendment. So to create another tax that's not for general revenue, you needed a constitutional amendment. And indeed, if not for FDR's court packing, the Supreme Court probably would have said that at the time. I, you know, I'm not running for office, so I have no problem being honest and saying that that's probably the case. But you know, the question you have to ask yourself is: coming 80 years into this unconstitutional growth of the federal government since the 1930s, is really the best way to come now and use the courts to say, yeah, 90% of government's unconstitutional, so it's struck down. It's 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 a uh, you know, not not really, no. Um, and so, so how did we justify our support for NFIB v. Sebelius? Because the individual mandate was different. Because that was new. That, to say that government could say, literally, like, you know, I'm going to fine you if you don't do 50 jumping jacks a day or if you don't eat spinach every day. Right? There's literally nothing. There's no way that's constitutional. And then that's something that's new, that's a step beyond what they've been doing. So that was very clearly unconstitutional. And Roberts just made it up and said it's a tax, which is weird because, you know, again, it makes no sense because according to Roberts, that means I could just say, OK, if you don't do this, then I'm taxing you. And then I could leverage all the powers that we don't have against the tax power. It, it was a voodoo. It was it was insane. So anyway, that's where we are today. And I, that's what I I believe is unconstitutional. I believe it's all unconstitutional. And certainly the individual mandate, we had the right to shoot add um and and we have a responsibility as our civic duty as citizens you know when we're advocating you know certain things we could say i don't like the policy but you know unfortunately you have the power to do it other things you do not have the power to do and i think we still have that right to say it and we could say that now a federal judge agreed with us what happened in this case specifically okay so the plaintiffs had a very clever and run around NFIB. And they said, 
look, basically, Roberts made very clear. It's very clear that there's at least five justices that believe that there is no regulatory right under the Commerce Clause to force someone to buy purchase insurance. And likewise, once you say that's unconstitutional because it's invariably linked, interconnected to the other portions, that it's the funding mechanism for everything, therefore, everything else goes by the wayside. And it's and it seemingly the other justices all seem to agree on that point. So therefore, if I have an argument that now the individual mandate is unconstitutional again, it's, it's unconstitutional and then everything else is. And what was the argument? The argument is that since in 2017, something interesting happened. Under the tax cut law, the tax cuts, they zeroed out the penalty indefinitely for not purchasing insurance. So they didn't officially rip out the statute, repeal the statute that you must purchase insurance, but they zeroed out the penalty. So, well, they had a clever argument that, well, now there's no tax anymore. So you certainly can't say it's a tax, even if you believed it was to begin with, and it's just a regulation. And if it's a regulation, it has to be justified under the Commerce Clause then. And you know, we already had five justices who are very clear that it's not. So, you know, hey, Reed O'Connor, you know, say it's unconstitutional. And he swung and he said it's unconstitutional. And then because you know you can't sever it from the rest, it's all unconstitutional. So that's where we are today. Now, let me take this piece by piece, and this is going to get very nuanced, you know, where, you know, normally I'm just very clear about where I stand, and I am clear about where I stand here, but I'm just saying there's a lot of multiple pieces that are very dependent on each other, and you just have to follow the case carefully, and I apologize if I'm not being clear, just let me know, send me an email, um, and I'll, I'll try to do an article as well, but let me start around the edges with one ancillary component of this that I think is very good about what Reed O'Connor did that we need to shove in the face of, of the liberals and, and their judicial supremacists when they do things. And that is, to be very clear, he did not issue an injunction. Forget about an injunction outside the plaintiffs, outside of Texas, outside the Northern District of Texas, um, nationwide. He didn't issue any injunction. He issued a summary judgment that you're asking me for a judgment that, look, I'm saying what government is doing to you is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. But nonetheless, he didn't place an injunction pending the appeal, which will go to the Fifth Circuit, and then eventually to the Supreme Court. So nothing changes in terms of subsidies, Medicaid, insurance regs, insurance coverage. Nothing changes. And the importance of that is to demonstrate, unlike what the left is doing, let me give you the most extreme example. A big problem we're having now is that any random forum shop district judge, and let's face it, conservatives clearly shopped it to Reed O'Connor here because they knew they'd get a favorable ruling from him. But when liberals shop to their liberal judges, what they do is they render opinions and then they issue injunctions and then nationwide injunctions. And then this is a whole other thing that the other branches of government view themselves as you know, bound by it, which they shouldn't be. And it permanently irreversibly creates harm that even though we know the Supreme Court would have never initially issued that opinion, 
And even though we know it's likely they're going to overturn it. But even if they do, the 6 to 12 to 18 months, however long it takes to render that opinion, we're going to suffer irreparable harm from an illegitimate district judge opinion that the Supreme Court ultimately is going to find to be erroneous. That's the big problem. So Judge Sabraw said that you must release kids. And not only that, um, you once the kids are released, the parents have to be released because you can't separate them. He made that up. So therefore, anyone who comes here with a kid, they're here to stay. I, I plotted this on a graph. That opinion was rendered in July of 2018. If you, I charted the border incursions of family units since July, the last five months. And, and it is a straight line up. It spawned the biggest invasion of family units we've ever had. The poverty, the public charge, the diseases, the amount of drugs that it enabled to get in and the amount of money that the drug cartels got from the smuggling and the coyotes as a result of this. This is the most irreversible harm. They're they're released. We're never going to see from them again, hear from them again. Think about the irreversible harm to the migrants. The seven-year-old girl that died that they're blaming on the Border Patrol, but you want to know who to blame it on. It's Judge Sabra of San Diego. I want my liberal friends to understand if you believe a judge could just wave his hand and do that and, um, and, and everyone has to listen, well, Reed O'Connor could have easily done the same thing and said Medicaid expansion stops, Obamacare premium subsidies stop, guaranteed issue community rating stops, so meaning insurance companies are now free to offer whatever plans they were offering pre-Obamacare. And told unless Congress comes in and writes a new law. He did not do that. So that in itself should be celebrated. And, you know, liberals complaining now, oh, now judges doing this. Oh, you know, they should understand that's a very big difference that we should all celebrate. So that's the easy part that we should all agree with. Um, and, you know, it exposes just, again, the contrast of the harm that could be done that a single judge would have that amount of power. And he did not wield that. So that's what that had. Now let's get into the meats, meat of the argument on the merits. Um, so let's take this in two steps. There's the standing in order to get standing to sue against the individual mandate. And then there's the second half the notion that the rest of the law is void because the individual mandate is unconstitutional. I disagree on both accounts. I believe it it is judicial supremacism and it violates Article 3 rules of cases and controversies of what the fundamentals of the judicial power is and, and isn't. However, as a district judge, I believe Reed O'Connor was basically following the precedent of his circuit and the Supreme Court with regards to both the rules of construction on standing before a court and on severability. I don't agree with those precedents. I believe they're wrong. I believe we need judicial reform for Congress to start tightening those up, among other things. 
But the left that fully believes in it, my my what I'm saying to you is go stew in the porridge you cooked. You built it. You always win 99 of 100 cases on that. Finally, a group of conservatives got clever and used your rules to so-called strike down a very consequential rule, uh, law, and policy that you like the same way they go up against our sovereignty. Now, to be clear, I'm not ta- I'm not engaging in whataboutism, like saying, well, it's okay because the Democrats do it. I'm saying I want to change it. I don't like this. But so long as they are going to keep this in the legal profession, I don't believe Reed O'Connor fundamentally was stepping outside of his bounds, except there is one point I do disagree that I think he's downright wrong on that I'm going to get to. Now, there's other angles that I think it is unconstitutional, but that's not what he was ruling on, and plaintiffs weren't asserting it. And frankly, I don't think they had standing to assert it. I think others do have standing to assert it if they would sue. But let me let me explain. Now, in order before we get to this, let's um let's take a step back and review our judicial philosophy. I have no problem with the judiciary having a limited role in opining, and that's a key word. There's no power of the purse, there's no power to enforce, but to opine on the constitutionality of a law or policy of government under the following conditions. And this is what what distinguishes my understanding, which I think is the correct one of judicial review, versus the practice of judicial supremacy slash judicial exclusivity. They could do so provided that Legitimate individual citizens have a valid injury in fact that is concrete and tangible, not speculative, not intangible, not touchy-feely, I feel stigmatized, I feel isolated, I feel discriminated against by government, that you have an injury in fact that government is going to fine or imprison me. It implicates a real unambiguous right spelled out in the Constitution or natural law. It's a clear right. The relief that they could apply, that you're asking for, they could give you, and it will flow directly from your arguments, and it will be limited only to your argument and only to the relief you need sought. Okay? And that, and and then the final thing is, and this is not for the judiciary. This is for the other branches of government and the body politic. Remember, a big part of my problem with judicial supremacy is not even so much the courts and what the judges are doing. It's the way the body politic and the education and society and the legal profession and the other two branches regard it. Like I said this before, if a hundred pound woman goes up to a two hundred fifty pound champion boxer and says. Give me $100, give me your watch, or I'll beat you up. Well, you know, is she the problem, or you're the problem if you decide to do it? In other words, they have the right to render grant relief in a particular case or controversy. But if, 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 if the court wants to make that self 
executing on the other branches of government and universally binding on all people outside of the parties of that court case, they have to rely on the persuasiveness of their constitutional opinion. And indeed, when the other branches and society at large and the citizenry and the media and everyone who has a right to give their input in the appropriate ways, whether it's a citizen just using his First Amendment to speak out, whether it's Congress and the power to legislate and the power of the purse, whether it's the executive branch and the power to enforce and send out law enforcement to enforce a certain law, they have the right, indeed, they have the responsibility to push back if they believe the judge got it wrong on the, on the question of constitutionality, especially when it's not a very individualized case and it's broad-based and it's a broad political issue. That's the equation that happens. Let, let, let me just give you some examples before we go on. We spoke about the New Jersey case. Let me give you an example of a very valid role of the courts. If um, in New Jersey, if I own right now, as of today, a 15 capacity mag for anything, it could be a nine millimeter pistol. Even though I legally purchased that when it was totally legal, and it's just merely sitting in my home. Under new law in New Jersey, that mag is considered illicit contraband. And if I am caught uh, harboring it you know, in my home, I am a fourth degree felon and I am potentially subject to 18 months in prison and or um, a fine. So that is the epitome of an individualized, concrete, tangible injury in fact on the most unalienable rights of Second Amendment in my home of upon a form of lawmaking that the Constitution explicitly said states and Congress, for that matter, Congress in Article 1, Section 9, states in Article 1, Section 2, do not have the power to do that. It's ex post facto retroactive laws. So I am allowed to go to a court and say, look, you know, I, I, save me from jail. And, and a judge could say, and indeed it should say in this case, look, we believe it's not judicial supremacism, it's constitutional supremacism, and the Constitution is very clear here. So therefore, you are allowed to own that in your house. Frankly, you're allowed to use it. Um, and, you know, we're going to nullify any, any punishment. We are not going to enforce any punishment for the purposes of the judicial branch. Now, that law is unconstitutional not because a judge said so. It's because it's unconstitutional. One, not the only final exclusive avenue, but one avenue is to go to a court. The other avenue is we all speak out. We petition the legislature again. We petition the federal government. If it's a state thing, it's, a, you know, there's a, it's decompartmentalism. We all have a responsibility to enforce constitution. It's not exclusion of the courts. The courts have one avenue. But that's what it is. But even in that case, the court didn't strike down the law. There's no such thing as striking down laws. There's no such thing as vetoing laws from a judiciary. They don't rip a, a statute out of the page. The statute's there. They just refuse to give it the effect of law in terms of the judicial branch of government. And, and now a citizen could go around and say, I have a ruling from a judge. I could do this. Now, in that case, everyone with a similar circumstance 
in a similar situation also, you know, could, could abide by that. Now, as always, in a case where other branches think the court's wrong, they could gum up the works. They could use their powers to, you know, make it hard to ever get these things. Um, you know, I often give an example of how it works. Now, now it gets complicated because there's all sorts of interactions with the civil society and the courts. There's citizen-on-citizen citizen litigation. There's state against the citizen, feds against the citizen, um, all sorts of different things. But let me give you an example of often when you have citizen versus citizen, and then it's for the government to enforce on one citizen over, the, over another. Let's say someone goes to a judge. Someone is a man, John Smith, who has, you know what, a male plumbing, a yin and a yang. Um, he's a man, and he goes before a judge, and the judge is like, you know what? I don't believe in Y chromosomes. You're really a female. Okay, so you're a female, and you, John Smith, is really Jane Smith, so you could go into this institution, whether it's a school or otherwise, and you have the right to use the female bathroom. Okay, fine. He goes to this school, and the superintendent of that school says, no way, you ain't going in there and, and harassing the girls. I'm not letting you in there. Okay. The courts don't have a way of enforcing that. The only way they could enforce that is if they would sue that guy again and then the 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 court is you know says the guy's in contempt and then they issue a bench warrant for him. Who services the warrant? Who I'm sorry, who executes the warrant? The executive branch of government. If it's the feds, it's the US Marshals under DOJ. If it's the state, it's the state troopers under the governor. The governor has the right to say, the Constitution says no such thing. You have no such right. The principal has the right. He has the jurisdiction to block you. I will not enforce it against him. Or a Kim Davis case. The courts don't have jurisdiction over marriage. Marriage is not in the Constitution. So state law stands. And Kim Davis is right. So I will signal, telegraph prospectively to any of these people that if you get in trouble with the courts, I'm not going to enforce it. Just like a court could say, I'm not going to enforce a prison sentence against your executive branch enforcement of the law. Again, you, know, you, you see what I mean? It goes back and forth. And ultimately, when there's disagreement, it's going to drag out and you pick a fight. And the people will decide over time through the media, through public opinion, through elections. Not that the courts don't have any say. You see what I'm saying? When it's legitimate, they have that say. That is what it is. So again, it has to be individualized, concrete, tangible injury in fact of a real right that's unambiguous. And um, it's really just in the context of addressing a specific action that you believe is constitutional that you want to take. And a court could then say you could take that action. But a court doesn't strike down laws. Okay, that's not what happens. And nor should the other branches necessarily have to regard it as such. It is not automatically self-executing on the other branches and universally binding on all other non-parties. And if in subsequent lawsuits they try to make it as such, there are ways the other branches could, could fight back. And then certainly one of them is they could do jurisdiction stripping and strip the courts of the ability to hear further cases on that subject matter. 
at least at a federal level. And then you then you do have a right to go to a state judge to get relief. But that's that's a different story. So I wanted to give you just that 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 brief overview of many hours worth of discussions, many columns we've written to explain this, the nuance of the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacism. There's no judicial review in a, in a formal affirmative sense that a judge either, you know, interprets the law or in some cases he gets to engage in judicial review and strike down laws. No, he interprets the law, but ultimately in the process of interpreting the law in a legitimate case with standing before him, if he feels the law is unconstitutional, he has the right to say the law is unconstitutional. Now, that in itself is not binding. It's, it's the same way Daniel Horowitz or Chip Roy or Mark Meadows could say the um, or Donald Trump could say the law is unconstitutional. You know, and, and we might want to respect if we think that judge is a legal scholar and has it right. You know, it, it ultimately, as, as uh, 11th Circuit uh, Judge William Pryor always said, that ultimately the judges rely upon the persuasiveness of their written opinion. If it's if it's BS or if it's if it's scholarly and, and it's real. So now I want to explain how my view is wholly consistent with what's going on here with a number of caveats that I don't agree with. Let's let's plug let, let's plug in this equation of what is the role of the courts, what's not the role of the courts, what the other branches of government could do here, and where we stand here with the Obamacare case. And just first, before we get to Judge Reed O'Connor, just in general, this is the equation that's lacking in everything the left is doing. They're judges. These are BS rights. These are often... So in the case of immigration, they're... Foreign nationals, they do not have standing. There's, you, you can't get standing to sue to enter the country. Um, they're blatantly violating longstanding precedent, aside from the Constitution, meaning they have neither of them on their side. And, you know, they're not individualized grievances often. So it's often the ACLU will get, um, they'll get standing because they'll say, well, this policy forces our staff to work harder for our clients and spread our research. Well, that's not a valid grievance. Or, you know, all of the Establishment Clause stuff. I don't like that Ten Commandments monument, the cross. Well, how does that affect you? Get a life. You don't, you don't have the power to just put something in the court to be vetoed. And like I said before, for the fact that you don't have the power to automatically do it, that means even once you do have valid standing, it, it's not a veto. You know, all these photo ID cases. I don't like that, that, that discriminatory law. Well, show me. Which plaintiff, John Smith, who were you denied uh, 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 the right to vote? Do you not have a photo ID? Did government not provide it? The states provided for you for free? Show me where you were denied and we'll give you relief. But you can't, there's no striking down these laws. So anyway, we're running out of time, and I could go on forever, but I want to get to the punchline here. The, the, the problem here is, let's go with the standing first the, on the individual mandate. They're arguing, the Texas, the 20 states, that, well, you know, you said it's only constitutional because it's a tax, not a regulation, 
But now that you zeroed out the penalty, you can't say it's a tax. It has to be a regulation, and therefore it's unconstitutional. The problem with that is that, you know, <laughs> it's circular logic because the fact that it's no longer a penalty, you don't have a concrete injury in fact. You just don't like the law, which we don't. We don't like Obamacare. But there's no clever game, okay, well, we'll get that part into the court, and then therefore it's not severable, so the whole thing's struck down. We don't believe in that stuff. I'm not going to start believing it now. So there, there is no, what standing do you have? Meaning, in the case of New Jersey, I could face 18 months in prison and or a fine if I'm caught with this. Here... I want relief. Okay, what's your relief? Well, I don't want to purchase insurance, so don't purchase it. Okay, here's your relief. It doesn't strike down the law, so go purchase it. I mean, nothing really changes, so it's not individualized. I mean, well, it could be individualized, but it's not It's not tangible or concrete, and the relief that you're seeking from the court is no different than your the situation you're already in, other than you want to say that they're vetoing and striking down a law, which that's the point they don't do. See, this is one of the ways that a court is not a legislature or an executive veto. See, if a legislature passes something and then a court and then and then the president or on a state level the governor vetoes the bill. That bill is null and void. There's there's no remnants of it. But let's say the president or governor signed it into law and it stands in law for whatever amount of time. And someone has a case or controversy arises under it and a judge is like, I'm striking it down. Well, you're not striking it down. There's no such thing as striking it down. You could give that guy relief if you feel it's right. But if the other branches feel it's not right, they can push back. So I believe Obamacare is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional to force someone to purchase a private product. But it's also unconstitutional to say you have to do 50 jumping jacks a day. Let's say government said you have to do 50 jumping jacks a day, but it wasn't backed by the force of a penalty. It's blatantly unconstitutional, but where's the injury? So I don't believe in that. I don't believe there's valid standing here. But This is me talking intellectually, honestly, and consistently on the rules of the judiciary that I want to see put in place, and I want Congress to make that clear in statute to harmonize it with what the founders really meant with Article 3, judicial power under cases and controversies. Nonetheless, I do think that Reed O'Connor made the case that under existing precedent from the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court, that is how they view it. I mean, think about it. If you're going to tell so, – so he was trying to say that, look, you know, it still is a strong force to be reckoned with when you have a statute loom, looming over, over you that officially it is unlawful behavior what you're doing, you know, even if there's no penalty. In terms of my belief of the threshold of case and controversy, I think that's BS, and I am – as much as he's a conservative judge, I am not convinced by his argument. But – the, the, the laws of first standing are so loose to sue the environmental laws. The, I mean, again, think about it. 
when, when they give standing to sue against the Ten Commandments or the Bladensburg Cross in PG County, Maryland. Oh, I feel I feel excluded. I feel I mean, literally, that's what the courts say. I mean, it's such BS. It literally doesn't affect the government's not doing anything to you here. The government officially is saying thou shall not purchase. Or thou shall purchase. <clears throat> now, it's not backed by a penalty. In the other cases, the government's not saying anything. It's just, you know, some county government decided to erect a monument. <laughs> it's an inanimate object. Live with it. Nonetheless, the courts say you get standing. So, I mean, I think relative to other things, he's right. And, you know, if that's, again, I'm being honest. I don't like it. But if that is the system we are not going to reform and we're going to go with, and he's a district judge, he's saying, look, you bring this case in front of me, we typically say you get standing for this. So this meets the threshold. So that's kind of the balanced view of that. Then there's the next part, which I don't like. But again, I think ultimately he is following precedent, but precedent I don't like. And that's severability. So this notion that, well, once the individual mandate struck down, then the rest of this be struck down because it's inextricably linked. Every, you know, the individual mandate is the funding mechanism that kind of makes it work that everyone has to buy in. And that's how the insurance companies could then cover everything and you fulfill the, the regulations of essential health benefits, guaranteed community rating um, and, you know, a dozen or so others. And then, therefore, you know, we're going to have enough money for the subsidies and make expansion, this and that, yada, yada. Um, indeed. The Supreme Court and everyone, including Scalia, who was alive at the time, and Thomas made that case. And had Roberts joined with the merits of it on the individual mandate, which, according to Reed O'Connor, he's saying, well, you know, he would have without the tax penalty. So therefore, you plug it into the equation. You take what the Supreme Court already we know said. It's, you know, severability. You got to strike it all down. Again. I disagree with that practice, although it is longstanding in the courts. This is exactly what turns them into a legislature. Meaning a lot of you might think it's academic, me saying, no, courts don't veto, they just grant relief to a plaintiff. But this is exactly a tangible difference between the two philosophies. See, if I just grant relief, so what's relief? I don't want to purchase the product. So don't purchase the product, fine. No, no. The law struck down because then then uh, community rating guaranteed issues should be down and, and the Medicaid and subsidies. Well, no. The, the, if you think it's unworkable, that's a political argument. That's not a legal argument. That's for Congress to take up whether they want to leave the law a dumpster fire or whether they don't want to leave it a dumpster fire and they want to fix it in some way. But it's not self-executing that automatically it's struck down because even the individual mandate technically is not struck down it's just you grant relief and say you're not gonna for the judicial purposes you're not gonna enforce it they don't veto so now you're saying there's a derivative veto and i just didn't like the language that he kept using like you're asking me to write a different statute this is a you know obamacare without the individual mandate now that we rule it unconstitutional it's a different law i have to say the whole thing is because otherwise i'm writing a new law you're not writing. We're not asking you anything. When I say we, I'm, I mean, I'm now siding for the Democrats, the defendants in the case. I'm just saying what I would say and what I typically say when it's the shoes on the other foot. And I'm going to be consistent here. You don't, you don't th that's not your job. Because here's where he's wrong. He's saying like, look, 
if I strike down part and not the whole thing, so then it's a new statute. But you're not striking down anything. It, the, the law is the same law. Now, what the political branches of government want to do with it, knowing that for the rules of the judiciary, you guys are not going to give force to it, although I would argue there was no force or penalty behind it anyway, which again gets to the annoy, you know, why I think this whole thing is weird. I don't believe in severability, but again, to be fair, it's not just in general, but in this very case, everyone, including Thomas and Scalia, did say that. Now, again, this is longstanding court policy, but I believe that Congress needs to and has fully has the power to start narrowing rules of standing, this notion of striking down different components the notion of striking down at all. I think Congress, this is what I, I'm advocating, judicial reform, and I still advocate it. But I don't, I don't think Reed O'Connor was wrong other than using the same typical legal profession language of striking down, which I just don't agree with, and I think it's wrong, and it's not the system of government we adopted in 1789. Now, there is one asterisk here, and then one other component I want to mention there is a slight difference than at the time that um, the the Supreme Court ruled on this, and that is at the time we were in it was an unknown. Obamacare was just about to go into effect. We didn't know, and it was like, oh my gosh, this notion that you're going to have the law without an individual mandate. Oh man, I don't know what you do with that. The reality is, again, this is where the circular logic comes in. You're saying, oh, and we, if we strike it down, then Oh my gosh, it's you can't have the law. I got news for you. The law, it, it is de facto struck down because they zeroed out the penalty. Now, you, the fact that legally it's on the books is academic as it relates to the practicality and economics feasibility of the law. Because as far as that, it's all the enforcement that matters and now people who don't want it will not purchase it and you know what it's functioning obamacare didn't burn down it burned us down unfortunately it's functioning when I, when i say it's functioning i mean it's functioning in terms of you know creating a monopoly ensuring that nobody without subsidies could purchase insurance if they don't get it from work or they have to go to a sharing ministry but again, that's a political argument. Now, you want to tell me that's unconstitutional to regulate, to subsidize, to redistribute, but that is not the argument that was being put forth. You know, some of my friends are telling me, well, I, I, I say, I, I keep challenging them academically. I say, what relief do you want sought here? Well, I don't want to purchase it. So I was like, you don't have to purchase it. Purchase it. Well, I want to be able to purchase other plans. Well, well, what do you want the court to do? Well, I mean, you know, they're not offering it. Well, that's because guaranteed issue community rating, so it's struck down. But you're not attacking guaranteed issue community rating. That wasn't part of the lawsuit. You're just doing it on severability. And that's that's a legislature. That's, that's a, a veto. That's not judicial power, in my view. Now, what I think is legitimate is if someone wants to start up an insurance company and they're like, I want to offer these plans, and it's unconstitutional for the federal government to tell me then I'm not allowed to offer insurance. Then I'm not allowed to underwrite it. They can't do that. That's, that's a separate lawsuit. 
But for a citizen to say, I want a court to strike down regulations because of the individual mandate that forces me to purchase, but doesn't really force me. You know, because it's all one scheme. Well, but but no, I mean, it's got to flow from the specific relief that is the grievance that you, that you're um, asserting here. That that's what turns the court into legislature, and this is what the ACLU is killing us with on all these other issues. And I I would rather move in the other direction to just eliminate it all rather than you know having our side do the same thing. But again, I will say, once these rules of the judiciary, without the other branch reining them in, are in place, you know, it's legit. And with again, one thing I just do disagree with is that Reed O'Connor kept saying like. He he went a step further and said the entire intent of Congress was that this should be together. It should be together. And I don't like him going with that intent. I don't like it. That, that That's the very thing that we always fight back against, that we don't like, you know, as, as originalists. That the, re, the reality is, especially after the 2017 tax law, you see that they were okay. Zeroing out the penalty, but keeping Obamacare. And the truth be told, I mean, that's a very political, subjective ar- argument. And I could actually tell you in an intellectually honest way, Congress couldn't care less. It was a majority Democrats in control of that Congress. They didn't need the individual mandate. You're, you're basing on a premise like, oh, they want the fiscal solvency. They don't care about fiscal solvency. Now, all things equal, when they have an entitlement, they want the tax revenue because it's a two for one. Then it gives them an excuse. They, Look, we got to fund it. And they like raising taxes and controlling people's lives. But they'll, I mean, maybe the Democrats in the 60s and the great society always cared about the budget. And even when they were for expanding government, they wanted to fund it with revenue. Now they don't care. They'll service it on the with, with debt. They don't care. So if you don't have the funding mechanism, I'll, I'll still keep it. The goal was not the individual man- mandate. They wanted the Medicaid expansion, the subsidies and the regs. They wanted to cover everyone. Yeah, and obviously, you know, as much as they can make a solvent, they'll make a solvent. That was their goal. I mean, very clearly, I hate to say it. So I, I don't agree with all the rationale he had. And ideally, I don't agree with the precedence he's basing it off of. But I will say, hey, buddies, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So go eat it. But I don't want to head in that direction. So that is, in my view, the intellectually honest way to, to view this. Now, I think... Roberts is going to find a way out either with standing and or with, like I said, with um, the severability saying, look, time has shown that they could work without each other. You're seeing that right now anyway. Um, I still have a hard time believing he's going to bite, even if the Fifth Circuit agrees. Um, I think it's important, again, to point out that Reed O'Connor did it the right way. Once you're going to do it, did not disrupt things pending the appeals. As much as we would like that political outcome to disrupt it. There's another political point to be made, and we, you know, we focused on the legal side. I just felt that I owed it to you because of the views I've been espousing, but we do have to get to the politics of this. Watch for Republicans to call for a fix. So these very same Republicans, that when the courts strike down marriage, and they strike down religious liberty, and they strike down borders, and they strike down election law, and strike down common sense abortion regulations, they don't call for a congressional fix. But finally, when you get a judicial supremacist benefit 
from judicial supremacy and a conservative outcome politically, suddenly they're going to want to fix it because they love Obamacare. Watch for that. Um, you know, j- just to, to, to move on, so late today, or when you get this show, late Monday, there's going to be cloture vote on, on jailbreak. Um, call every senator you own, your congressman, because it has to go back to the House. Say you will not vote to reelect them. You are watching them. This is the worst Willie Horton bill. This is the worst thing to pass since Obamacare, frankly. The more I've thought about this, I've prepared my closing arguments. I prepared our key vote language. Um, I just have to whittle it down. And this is worse than I even thought. This is horrible on many levels from what we know. But I just want to note that the CBO came out with that score. Very important. 50, the equivalent of 53000 in a year being let go. And it will still increase the deficit because they're all going to be on welfare. That's what they said. As much as you know, they complain about the cost of the joint, but the joint don't cost as much as the welfare. And these vaguely defined Cornell University liberation theology courses of how the cops are horrible and society failed them is not going to make them a more peaceful citizens and certainly not necessarily productive entrepreneurs that they're not going to be on welfare. And that doesn't even get into the tens of billions of cost of property damage and violent crime, much less the human cost. So I'm going to have an article out on that as well which is very important. This CBO score blows up the entire premise of this bill, the lies behind it that it doesn't let people go and the movement. And by the way, a couple things here. Um, so, so Tom Cotton has an amendment to codify the, to expand to the exceptions, meaning the people that don't get early release that Cruz had in, in his amendment that was not adopted, but Cruz is being a jerk on this, I hate to say, and is caving even without it. Because again, it's not intellectual. It's all, they don't want to expend political capital in opposing it rather than give me a reason to vote for it. It's more like the political class says, this is what I must do. I'm too scared to oppose it. So I'm going to give, you know, lie to myself and convince myself this is what we need to do. But, Here's the deal. Tom Cotton added like 10 more offenses that aren't eligible. And he asked the U.S. Sentencing Commission for a score of how many people are currently in prison under these titles of federal law that under current bill will be eligible for early release. 1,466 felons convicted of coercing a child to engage in illicit sexual activity. That's 18 U.S.C. 2422. 1,466 of them. There are 657 assault offenders, various criminal assaults. There are 5,934 serving time under convictions related to bank robbery involving violence or risk of death. 332 offenders for carjacking. And then there's 25,235 that are under just this residual federal crime of violence in 18 USC uh, section 16 for which the offender was sentenced to a term of imprisonment for more than one year. That's a federal people. There's 25,000 of those. That's the biggest one. They are all eligible. So when they say 
even after their fixes. Why is it that we have to pull teeth to, to like, could you not allow rapists? No, Daniel, it doesn't. Not true. Not true. Oh, uh, you're right. Okay, we won't allow it. But then it's a self-indictment. What about the 20 other things? It's the same thing. It's like they excluded meth kingpins. Okay, what about heroin and cocaine kingpins? And all other traffickers. Meaning the fixes are actually a self-indictment in everything they're doing. Here's the bottom line with jailbreak. Here's the bottom line. We now know it from CBO, but it was obvious. It incontrovertibly releases tens of thousands of people and downgrades so many crimes and lower sentencing for the worst drug traffickers, the most violent people. Everyone agrees. Even if you want to say that there's a few people here and there you don't think should be in there that long or shouldn't be in federal prison. By and large, federal prison is the worst, that is the last place to attack for leniencies. Even if you're worried about the population, only 10%, roughly 180,000 or so of close to 2.2 million incarcerated are in federal institutions. And that number is going down rapidly. Last eight or so years, it went down 18% in raw numbers, raw numbers. Incarceration rate is the lowest it's been since since the 90s. And by and large, you have some random federal crimes, white collar, whatever, but, but by and large, these are the people that are career criminals, the most violent that graduated to the federal system. And the feds targeted them, targeted them for very specific public safety reasons. So when you have such a wide net, that's that, that's the point. Remember, even though they, after much coercing and much changing, they exempted more and more um, violent categories. But again, it's only the exceptions. Anyone who's not in them is still eligible. And that's a lot of violent people. Rather than if just targeting, targeting the leniencies affirmatively to the few people. That's the bottom line. So it's incontrovertible that this is the most violent population you're letting out. It's also incontrovertible about what happens when you let them out. Well, what happens when you let them out? The Bureau of Justice Statistics just completed another round. I, I published this article, article earlier this year. They did the most comprehensive analysis, hundreds of thousands of prisoners that were released the last 10 years by states under similar, similar social experiments. The same type of thing. Oh, take some sort of call to recidivism class and you get early release. Home confinement, sometimes complete parole. There's nothing new here. They've been doing it. The pendulum has already swung another way. And they found, they failed. No one has done a study like this. This is the DOJ, BJS. 68% of those released state prisoners were rearrested within three years. 79% within six and 83% within nine. Most importantly, 77% of those released for drug offenders were arrested for non-drug crimes within nine years. And more than a third of them were arrested for violent crime. So again, again, 77% were arrested. And it's not just for drug crimes, which is bad enough. It could be property crimes, other things. And then a third of them were, 34% were, were for violent crimes. 
So we have a certitude that you're releasing them, a certitude that they re-offend, which is indeed their entire talking point of why we need it. Right? It's circular logic. Yeah, we need to stop the recidivism problem. But you agree. So we all agree that you're letting out the most violent population of the most violent people. And that they, the, they recidivate at insane rates, particularly the drug traffickers. And not just for drug crimes. And we are to believe that by simply writing in statute the words productive activities and anti-recidivism programs and, quote, mandates that DOJ, let me just get the language here, that DOJ enter into partnership with the very, quote, nonprofits and institutions of higher education, unquote. That are already, it's like Cornell University, that are, are already making the prisoners worse. Somehow, it's like basically giving a prisoner, giving a, a gangbanger a knife to put over your neck. But don't worry, I said hocus pocus to him, so he won't slit your throat. Are you going to trust that? And think about it, as, as the US, assistant U.S. attorneys have said, as DOJ has made the case themselves before they were silenced by Jared. By the way, it's a whole other scandal. Um, DOJ, in many cases, are now telling senators when they request certain information, we can't comment on the legislation. Now, while it's true that once you have the administration, which officially does run DOJ, take a position, they're not going to contradict it. But they typically, if, if you don't, you're not asking them for opinion. You're like, okay. I need to know what's the effect of this and this, or what's this thing. And they're not giving it to them now because they're scared. That is very problematic. But anyway, anyway, we are to believe that these random programs and the point that DOG, DOJ made is that they don't have to do anything they're not doing. Any program that easily meets the description of statute under the new statute, they're either already required to participate in or they already have a high-level participation. So there's no greater incentive to behave better and reform as a person better if you tell them, I mean, you're not dangling another hoop in front of them that they have to jump in in order to get early release. They get it for free. So under their own, the very rationale for pushing this bill is an admission that this is Willie Horton times tens of thousands. So much more to say. We're going to have put out as many episodes as we can this week. This is episode 322. We're going to have more. God bless y'all for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for sending me your ideas, your comments, your prayers. Again, tech savvy folks, think of platforms, ways we could take this show the next level, some sort of fan club page, not for my sake, but for grassroots activism. Until next time, which will be very soon, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.